Hey, it's Curious City editor Susie Yon. It's that time of year when many of us are in that holiday haze between Christmas and New Year's. While you might be rushing around returning gifts or getting ready to ring in the new year, we're taking time to reach back in our archive for some holiday reflections. Curious City listener Carolyn Cross wanted to know the history of the Walnut Room restaurant at the Marshall Fields Department Store downtown on State Street. It's been a holiday tradition in her family. The Marshall Fields is now a Macy's department store, but the Walnut Room continues to be a Chicago tradition. First, reporter Monica Eng takes us back to how it got its start and the nostalgia it holds on many Chicagoans. But the Walnut Room isn't all warm and fuzzy memories. Later, we'll hear how those early decades of Marshall Fields were actually painful for many patrons. That's all coming up. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Carolyn Cross's great-grandparents came to Chicago from Lithuania around the turn of the century. And even as newly arrived immigrants, they started participating in a Chicago Christmas tradition, visiting the Walnut Room restaurant at the Marshall Fields Department Store downtown on State Street. It all started when her great-grandmother took her grandmother. And then my grandmother took my mom, and then my mom took me. So, you know, it's been a tradition in the family for a long time. And that tradition, it's always included some specific steps. First... When we were little, little kids, we would go see Santa Claus. After that... We would go look at the windows. Then the best part, chicken pot pie at the Walnut Room. Now, if you're not familiar with this Chicago Christmas tradition, the Walnut Room is a huge elegant restaurant on the seventh floor of Marshall Fields, now a Macy's. It's trimmed with Circassian walnut from Russia and flanked by white columns with a second-level balcony overlooking the main floor. And every year around the holidays, an enormous Christmas tree stands in the center of it all. Here's how Carolyn remembers it. We would go have lunch in the walnut room and sit by that beautiful tree with those waitresses and their black dresses and their white aprons. It just had such great memories this time of year. So this year, when a lot of us are feeling nostalgic about holiday traditions we miss, Carolyn asked us to tell her more about the famous Walnut Room, how it became a Christmas tradition, and why it still holds up. What we found was that the Walnut Room and that Christmas tradition was part of a larger strategy at Marshall Fields that went way beyond the holidays. A plan to make the department store accessible to all kinds of shoppers of every class and to make their store a nearly indispensable part of people's lives. But how did the Walnut Room start? Historian Sarah Sullivan says it all began with an impromptu lunch one afternoon at Marshall Fields at the tail end of the 1800s. As the legend goes, there was a salesperson who was um, serving a group of ladies. And um, after the, the ladies had amassed quite a bit of merchandise that they were looking to buy, they, they felt they needed to cancel the sale and just leave because they were hungry. 
See, at the turn of the century, women often had to go home when they got hungry. Because the only place to eat at that time were in saloons, and saloons were not places that ladies would choose to eat. Also, there were no public bathrooms. So those two things prevented women from being as social as they were in later periods. So when this particular group of lady shoppers at Marshall Field started to get hungry, they figured the shopping day was over. So the salesperson, thinking quickly on her feet, said, oh, no, no, don't leave. Let me set up a a table and some china and linens, and I will share my lunch with you. And that is what she did. She shared with them Mrs. Herring's pot pie. That was her grandmother. So she shared her grandmother's chicken pot pie. And Sullivan says this improvised meal caught the eye of Harry Selfridge, the flamboyant Marshall Fields executive who was constantly dreaming up new ideas to attract customers. Selfridge happened to see this all occur and realize that it made sense to put a restaurant in um, the store. Uh, Marshall Fields was not necessarily certain about this in the beginning because, of course, they were a retail establishment, not necessarily a restaurant. But they decided to take a chance on it, and it turned out to be a really good way to get more people into the store and to get more foot traffic through the store. Over time, the little restaurant grew into a large tea room, serving corned beef hash, chicken salad, codfish cakes, orange punch and orange shells, and of course, that famous chicken pot pie. Historian Neil Gale says it was a while before they settled on a name for the restaurant. At first, it was called the South Grill Room. Uh, Then it was known as the Walnut Tea Room next to Walnut Grill. I guess they like changing names. And finally, it turned into the Walnut Room in 1937. Growing up in West Rogers Park in the 60s, Gale says he started visiting the Walnut Room alone when he was still in grammar school. At eight years old, and you wouldn't do this today, at eight, my folks would let me go downtown by myself, the 155 bus and the, and the north-south train, and I'd get off and I'd go shopping at Fields. At this point, the Walnut Room was already a Christmas tradition for many Chicagoans. And when Gail came into the city on his solo excursions, he had a tradition of his own. A trick for managing the restaurant's notoriously long holiday line. Many times there was a really long line for one or two people. And the line for three or more, you know, had ten parties in it. And I was precocious enough to approach a family that looked nice and ask them if I can join them so I wouldn't have to wait an hour. Wasn't that weird? Uh, Yeah, but, you know, I met a lot of nice folks. But remember, Carolyn's question was about how the Walnut Room came to be a Christmas tradition in the first place. And Sullivan says the answer is wrapped up in the evolution of Christmas itself. At the turn of the 20th century... Christmas really wasn't the holiday that we know it to be. Santa was a figure that was known somewhat, but not every good girl or boy had a visit from Santa in that period. So all of it kind of gradually evolved. And Marshall Fields gradually evolved with this vision of Christmas. By the the 30s and particularly the 40s, every department store had a Santa Claus. Every department store had a toy department. And Marshall Fields was definitely a leader in the Chicago area in doing that. The department store kicked off one Christmas tradition as early as 1907, when they put a Christmas tree in the center of the Walnut Room for the very first time. But that came with some complications. When Marshall Fields originally had their Christmas tree in the Walnut Room, the initial trees were real, live trees, 
And they actually hired a man to sit all night and watch the tree to make sure that it did not end up on fire. Remember, this would have been less than 50 years after the Great Chicago Fire, which destroyed their previous location. Then after they rebuilt and expanded on the same spot, another fire came along a few years later and burnt it all down again. So better safe than sorry. But pretty quickly, it occurred to Fields that they should just invest in artificial trees. And that's what they had done ever since. But for lots of Chicagoans, their Christmas memories go beyond the walnut room and the great tree. Some of us had moms who didn't want to deal with the long line at the walnut room. But we still got to see the dazzling Christmas windows. Spectacular decorations with scenes that told a story each year. And Sullivan says Fields took those very seriously. Fields was one of the first, if not the first, retailer to use store windows as a form of marketing. Prior to that, windows were only used to let light into the store so people could see what they were shopping for. And um, Marshall Fields got the idea to use those spaces for merchandising. And obviously, during the Christmas time, it became apparent that they needed to do that with um, Christmas decorations. So the Marshall Fields store came up with a theme every year, and um, the windows and the walnut room and the store would be decorated using that theme for a given year. As the corporate lore goes, there was a department that spent an entire year acquiring materials and planning the design for the Christmas windows. Over the years, those themes have included everything from the night before Christmas to the Nutcracker to a Marshall Fields Christmas mascot named Uncle Mistletoe. Monica Ng first reported this history of the Walnut Room back in 2020. After the story aired, Curious City heard from many listeners willing to share their fond memories of the holiday tradition. But a few wrote in sharing their painful experiences particularly African-American patrons during the 50s and 60s. Upon further reporting, it turned out Marshall Fields had a history of racism and discrimination. Coming up, Monica sits down with one of those listeners who shares another perspective of the Walnut Room. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. After Curious City shared a story about the long-standing tradition of the Walnut Room at the former Marshall Fields downtown, we heard from a number of people who had bad experiences there, particularly Black customers. Listener Joyce Miller-Bean wrote to Curious City to share her story. She's a born and bred Chicagoan who grew up on the southwest side in Morgan Park. Monica Ng sat down with her in 2020. She started by asking Joyce why she decided to write to Curious City. When I heard it and then read the accompanying text with it, I felt that the people who said it were quite sincere, but they were also uh, white and had a totally different experience. So 
on the one hand, I was kind of a little bit upset, <laughs> more than a little. I said, oh, my God, fields of all places. <laughs> but I also knew that for them, it very much was. But then my mind flashed back to all the ugly experiences of attitude and actions that I've had. So I said, well, I'd like to let the folks at Curious City know I love your show, and I know that you're all very sincere in seeking the, the truth about many questions. So I said, let me just put that perspective out there. If I may add one more thing that, that troubled me a bit is the fact that while this was not in the slightest done purposely, part of the problem we face with this endemic forms of, of, shall we say, less racial consideration is that sometimes a lot of people, you know, you think about one group's view of something, you say, oh, yeah, it was always such fun. Never thinking, yeah, but was it fun for the, the person of color or the LGBTQ person or the person with a disability? And I mean, I'm not just saying this was you folks, anybody, myself included, we can all make these mistakes. So that's why. That is such a great point. And, and one can be like, well, isn't that everybody's experience? And boy, I think the, the more you learn about the world, the more you realize there are a zillion different experiences. Um, and so, so you mentioned you had a specific experience at the Walnut Room. Would you be able to tell me a bit about that? That would have been around 1956. And I remember when once my mom took me to the Walnut Room because, you know, my mom and dad wanted their kids to have the nice experiences as Chicagoans too. And I remember standing in line with mom and there was a, it's been years, but a maitre d' or someone who sat and he kept totally, literally stepping around mama and me and going to these other people who were all white. And of course, my mother said, excuse me, we're next in line. And he kept coldly saying, I'll get to you. So after a few minutes, my mother said, I see. And uh, we left. And I didn't go back to the Walnut Room for years until I was actually uh, finished with college and grad school and was an actual working adult. And one of my business contacts in Chicago, where I was working, asked to meet me for lunch at the, this was been around 1976. And I was actually a little hesitant. I didn't tell her, but of course it was 1976 and I was an adult and there was a, there was a difference, but that's the thing I, I remember most unpleasantly about the wall of that room. Fields didn't really want black customers or, or people of color period, I'm sure. And you felt it. You were mentioning that there was sort of the general feeling at Fields, too, not just in the Walnut Room. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yes, this was the thing. Throughout the store, when I was younger in particular, and uh, with many of my friends and I talked about it when they were older, uh, you felt the sense of you would just, even your dollars, they would take them grudgingly. For example, I can remember one year, it was near Christmas, that my mother had taken me down to the toy section, which was famous in Fields, and they had a very clever, now that I'm an adult, a very clever promotion. They had stuffed animals, Monica, that were the same size as the baby animals they represented. So the baby stuffed elephant was the size of a real baby elephant. And my personal favorite, I remember, the baby stuffed giraffe. Well, I, like all young children, I was no more than five or something, was waiting eagerly to see this. And the clerks at the store were taking other children putting them up on top of the floor models and having them pet them. And I waited for one of them to come get me and they ignored us. And again, I was very hurt. I remember that. And I looked at my mom and then she said, come on, Joy, we'll go. So it was a pretty, you, you know, you felt this, this disdain, people watching you. And I could share one more story, a friend. We were talking about this and she remembered in 1971, this happened. Uh, and these are all, these happened, we all are African-American that I'm speaking of here. 
So her mother collected ornaments and Fields, of course, was famous for having a unique and, and wonderful things like ornaments. But every year her mother would get a new one. But she said her mom and dad had talked about it. And for years, she didn't go to Fields to get one because of the atmosphere I'm talking about. But it was 1971. The civil rights movement had done a lot of good. And she thought, all right. So she took our family friend who was about five at the time and they went to buy the ornaments. So she was at the counter where you'd buy them. And the young man behind the counter was still like when I was a kid, ignoring her. Only this time, the mother said, I see and went to get a manager. Now, this is interesting. The manager, the woman who was the manager was very nice, Monica. She was horrified that this young man had done this and was apologizing to my friend's mother and was making it right. But while the two adult women were talking, my friend was right behind her mom, a few feet behind, little five-year-old girl. This clerk, the man, young man, came angrily from behind the counter, obviously upset that his manager was not supporting him on this, and ground his foot onto the foot of this little five-year-old, stepped on it, smashed her toes, and angrily looked at her and then walked off. She said to this day she was too frightened by his look to say anything to her mom at that moment. And she said, I was too scared to even cry. But she's now in her 50s and said, I still remember the pain that I felt when he did that and his face, the hatred and anger. So when I read about the nice folks who were writing in with their fond memories, I thought, yeah, that depends a lot on how, how much melanin you had in your skin because it, that was the kind of thing that, that Marshall feels for many people of color. That was what you kind of almost said, oh, yeah, feels, you know, yeah, you're going to get it. And if anybody wonders, well, then why did you shop there? You have to think of it from two viewpoints. Number one, like my dad and mom said, we're entitled, we're taxpaying Chicagoans. Why can't we shop where we want? And number two, uh, Marshall Fields did have a great variety of things you could really not get anywhere else. But uh, you had the way that if you felt like, you know, being looked down upon and ignored and racially treated in a poor sense. But so those are <laughs> on, those are my more my memories of the Marshall Fields of my growing up years. Yeah, I spoke to another colleague and she said, oh, yeah, you know, she said when, when I, she's younger, she said when I had a graduation, you know, I had a, I had a fine lunch at, at Marshall Fields, but my parents and grandparents, that was another story. And so I was thinking, well, this must have been fairly well known among a certain group of people. Do you feel like among the people you knew, it was sort of like, yeah, Marshall Fields. Oh, yeah. It was just common knowledge. I mean. It was almost like, oh, yeah, Fields. What, you know. In fact, Monica, it was so well-known that if somebody treated you nicely, because human beings are human beings, even in its worst era of racial wrongness, the wrongdoing, there were good, nice people there. And so when you would get a nice white clerk and then sometimes folks would say, oh, yeah, I was trying to buy some frango mints and a lady was actually polite and friendly. And we're like, really? At Fields? Well, that's a nice change. So... It was kind of well known, as your friend um, said. There, it changed, of course, and now there are, of course, uh, other African Americans working there. So eventually, they had to just hire people on merit of all complexions, light, dark, in between. So it was pretty well known that you just couldn't go in and expect to get a normal, pleasant shopping experience. So, was it like this at all department stores downtown? I mean, were there oh, any differences? Oh no, it wasn't that. I didn't experience the same at several others. For example, my uh, I remember going to Carson Peary Scott, 
and which was also a nice upscale, uh, you know, department store. It wasn't the quite at the level of, of Fields, I suppose. But if people gave Fields an A plus for its quality products, I'd give uh, Carson's an A. But um, it was a, it was a different experience, Monica. I don't recall ever feeling unwelcomed. Um, I know for a fact that eating there was different. Uh, they had two levels of eatery. They had a restaurant, and then they had a kind of a diner type of place that was for shoppers called the Tartan Tray, which is where my mom and I would go for lunch and if we were shopping. And I remember little Joyce was very happy because the trays all had plaid on them, and I thought that was exciting. And um, the people were lovely. My personal favorite meal, kids are so weird. Here I had all these things. Mom said, get whatever you want. And I had a grilled cheese sandwich like I could have had at home. But they would be so sweet. they say, oh, you want a pickle with that? I remember the Carson's was very nice. I don't want to romanticize it. Maybe others had problems. But frankly, I enjoyed going to Carson's. Uh, Rothschild's was a clothing store when I was a youngster. I think they've long been out of business. But I remember their mama and dad would sometimes go there to buy uh, clothing for my siblings and myself. And the lady that was there in the women's department, it was almost like she was a private shopper. We would go back and she would say, oh, Mrs. Miller to my mother and oh, Joyce. And just as nice as you please. Weebolts and Sears, I don't recall having anybody be ugly like that. So have you been back to Fields since you were a kid? And what have you told your kids? Well, I have been back. Uh, as as my kids, because um, my, my late husband was also a Chicago and grew up, he was seven years older than me. And that makes a difference because even Al and I used to talk about the fact that that vast difference, even things were even worse for him. So when the kids were growing up, we told them about these experiences. I have been back and um, I first started going back in my 20s when I was working. And that from the time that uh, the, the person asked us to have lunch at the Walnut Room, uh, and I found it was like, in this case, I think it was more personality. Some were nice, some were rude. But then I was also a grown up and I would, if I had someone rude, I would call the manager and stop him or her. It was a, it was a mixed feeling, but I just didn't have the same joy going in there. Um, my kids, uh, of course they're millennials. So when they would go, um, it was a, it was a different experience. Now, when they were young and myself, we loved the windows. Now, the, the field's windows were wonderful. But again, you could look at the windows in complete comfort from the, quote, safety of the sidewalk with no one judging you or anything and just enjoy them. So my kids, um, they know the history of Chicago's racism as well as the good things about our city. That's Curious City listener Joyce Miller-Bean speaking with Monica Eng in 2020. Monica is now a reporter at Axios Chicago. Joyce Miller-Bean facilitates a series of writing workshops for the Indigenous Lecture and Writing Series through the University of Illinois at Chicago and Northwestern University. She's also the co-chair of the Racial Equity Task Force of the Evanston Public Library. And she's writing a collection of original ghost stories entitled Midnight Coffee. Curious City is a production of WBEZ Chicago and is part of the NPR Network. The show is produced by Jason Mark and Joe Dassault. Adriana Cardona-Magigad is Curious City's reporter. Maggie Civit is the digital and engagement producer. I edit the show. I'm Susie Ahn. Thanks for listening.
Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org slash curious. Thank you.